Uh, so I want to begin by uh, a bit of a disclaimer. So I adapted tonight's lesson from a lesson that uh, Pastor Shad gave to the staff not too long ago. Put my own spin on it, but I'm using the same passages in a kind of a similar point at the end of it. Um, so we're going to be looking at two different stories. Um, they're both Bible stories. So uh, if you'd like to follow along, you can start off by turning with me in your Bible to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. Um, the stories are both a little long, so I won't be reading directly from the Bible. I'll be giving a synopsis of those passages, and uh, um, yeah, I'll also draw your attention to particular verses as we go along. And as you're turning in your Bibles to, again, Joshua 9, I'm going to offer one more prayer. I know we've had a lot of prayers in succession, but hey, tonight's lesson's also about prayer, so let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you could give us understanding, Lord. Uh, give us understanding even whenever we think that we know what's best, Lord. Um, may your Holy Spirit be working in this uh, midst. May it convict us of times ever our own confidence and our own knowledge has maybe blinded us to what you're doing. And uh, yes, may your Holy Spirit empower us so that we could uh, have our lives be changed for the better. I pray this in your name. Amen. Um, so, if you've turned to Joshua 9, you probably have a header in your Bible that marks the section something like uh, the Gibeonite Deception, which is an excellent heading, um, but it's also a terrible one because it spoils the entire story. So please forget that this is called the Gibeonite Deception and be surprised whenever the deception happens. Um, so, so you see, um, hundreds of years before this story, uh, Israel had received a promise from God that they would inherit the land that was owned by the Canaanites. And now... The nation, led by Joshua, was inheriting that land through conquest. The mission was for the land to vomit up the Canaanites, whose evil works were polluting it. Um, God promised that he would send a plague of hornets to drive out the Canaanites. That's spoken of in Exodus 23:28 and in Deuteronomy 7:20. And on top of that, those that uh, wouldn't flee because of the hornets would be motivated to flee because of terror, as God says. Um, terror from knowing that this God was bringing his judgment upon them in the same way that he had brought judgment upon Egypt through the plagues that he enacted against that nation. Um, on top of that, he was granting military victories to the Israelites. So, uh, yeah, ideally, they would be fleeing from that. That's uh, Exodus 23, verse 27. Uh, but... Before Israel even began the conquest, before they even got to the Jordan and began their conquest of the promised land, God had put a few stipulations on the Israelite people. And one of the stipulations that he made was that the Israelites couldn't make any covenants or promises with the Canaanite population. That is Exodus 23:32. He couldn't make any, the Israelites, including Joshua, could not make any promises or covenants. Basically, they couldn't make any peace treaties with these people. And I might sound a little harsh, but it does make sense. The stipulation does make sense since God didn't want the Israelites to become tempted to perform the heinous and just flat out evil acts of the Canaanite people. The Canaanites, the Bible tells us, uh, practiced such things as bestiality. They practiced uh, adultery, uh, incest, homosexuality. They sacrificed their children to their god, Molech. So, um, many of those things, if not all of them, we could say, yeah, rather not those things be happening. But the people of Israel were supposed to be a people defined by love for God and a love for neighbor. So if they started to adopt these other gods and they started to worship these other gods by interacting with these other peoples, 
then that mission to love God and love neighbors would become a little complicated. They'd be tempted to wrongdoing, as we will see later in the Bible, actually does happen. Now, the people of Gibeon, who were Canaanites, uh, it seems like they knew that Israel wasn't going to be making any peace treaty with anyone who lived in Canaan. Um, So they decided they were going to deceive the people of Israel. Everyone act surprised. Deception. (gasps) Ah, there we go. (laughs) Excellent reaction. Um, You didn't see that coming. Uh, They put on, so the Gibeonites, in order to deceive the Israelites, they decide they're going to put on these worn out, tattered clothes. They decide that they're only going to pack stale bread to make it look like they've been traveling for a really long time. And they're also going to have these old burst wineskins that they're going to be carrying with them. So um, they get all these things and then they waltz right into Joshua's camp. They go right up to him and they get to the chase and they say, hey, we've come from a distant country. Make a covenant with us, please. And, um, you know, I haven't read The Art of the Deal, but I don't think that's how you begin negotiations whenever you're meeting with someone. Um, and what I think is so funny about the, this deception is that it is, like, just patently false. There are some clear red flags here because, you know, the Israelites, they aren't just going to accept this at face value, so they ask follow-up questions. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the follow-up questions is, hey, you know, where are you from? And the Gibeonites can't give an answer to that. They're asked, like, you know, they say... We're from a faraway land. They ask, where is this from? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're from a faraway country. Like we told you, you probably never heard of it. Anyways, please make a covenant with us. And (laughs) and again, that's a clear red flag. But the Israelites, they ponder this for a moment. They think, you know what? No one just walks around in worn out clothes. No one just carries around stale bread. No one has these burst wineskins just laying around. So they, they probably, you know, we probably haven't heard of this faraway country. They probably are just some crazy people from far away who want to make a covenant with us. So, yeah, they seem legit. Let's make a covenant with them. Long story short, the Israelites think that they know the answer. Because they think they know the answer, they decide they are going to make a covenant with the people of Gibeon. What's a super important detail for tonight, for us, is found in verse 14. So we're in chapter 9, verse 14. In that passage, it says that the Israelites did not ask counsel from the Lord. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. And the fact that the Bible takes a moment to comment on that, I think, is a very important thing. So, to make a long story short, they don't ask counsel from the Lord. As a consequence, Joshua forges peace with them. He makes a covenant with them, and he swears to God to adhere to that covenant. And in so doing, he failed to keep God's commands. He broke the stipulation that God had made to not make a peace treaty with Canaanites. He didn't seek counsel from Yahweh, so he disobeyed his God. And that's our first story, the Gibeonite deception. So now, if you can turn with me in your Bibles to our second story, it's 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. This is much later in the biblical timeline. The people of Israel have been established in the land for some time now. They've had an excellent time in the land. They've gone through the uh, time of the judges where the Bible says over and over again, there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Definitely nothing bad could happen to that, right? Um, well, if something does happen from that, the civil war happens. And in the wake of the civil war, uh, they decide that they're going to have a king or rather, well, they, they do decide and then God appoints a king in King Saul. But if they thought that was going to make things better, well, Saul wasn't a very good king. 
Saul disobeyed God. And in response to this, God had to appoint a new king, and that was King David. David, of course, isn't a king yet in this story. As soon as, uh, you know, people got, as soon as Saul starts to see that, you know, things are going well for David, Saul understandably isn't too thrilled that his dynasty is going to begin and end with him. So he decides he's going to hunt down David, and so he does. The entire nation of Israel then is turned against David because its king is turned against David. And because of this, David has only one place to turn to. We've heard about it a few weeks ago. He turns to the Philistines, and he asks to to receive shelter from a Philistine leader. And the Philistine leader does grant him shelter. They actually give David a city, um, very charming little village named Ziklag. I think that's how you pronounce it, Ziklag. I, I don't know. Um, so it's, we'll, go, we'll say Ziklag because that sounds cool and maybe foreign. So, um, <laughs> so they get this lovely city of Ziklag. And um, David goes there. He has his 600 men with him. These are the only men that are still loyal to him. It's an army of men. And these men, uh, they basically uh, immigrate out there with their friends, not the friends, their family members, their wives and their children. And they take up residence in Ziklag. Um, and from that village, David and his, his 600 men continue to wage a war that they had already been fighting against Israel's enemies, the Amalekites. These Amalekites are actually descendants of the Canaanites that Joshua had been fighting earlier because Israel did not uh, drive out all of the Canaanites before them. Now, one day, the Amalekites got a drop on David. While David and his men were out doing a raid, the Amalekites, a band from their army, comes and swoops into this quaint, idyllic village of Ziklag, and it burns the village to the ground. Not only do they burn the village to the ground, but they kidnap all the women who are in the village, including David's two wives. Now, understandably, David's men were not too happy about this. Their king, or not king, leader, has just led them into a trap, and now they've lost their family, including their wives. And that, they're so angry that they say, you know what, David? Um, you're, not, you're not a really great leader. We're going to stone you to death. Yeah, exactly. I just saw Lenise's face. She just goes like, oh, really? Like, that's, that's the next logical decision. Um, so, yes, they decide they're going to stone David to death. Um, and I don't know about you, but like, if I were David in this situation, I think it'd be pretty clear to me what the next logical step is. I mean, at this point, you're on the run from your home nation. The king of your home nation is out to kill you. The only men who support you are these 600 dudes who just had their wives and children kidnapped. These men now want you dead as well, the only men who are loyal to you. And in fact, your own two wives have been kidnapped, and the people who kidnapped all these wives and children are your ancient enemies, people who you are actually at war with at this present moment. It seems like the next logical step would be to rally the troops, turn their anger towards the people who did it, chase those guys down, and get your people back. I mean, it seems like the next logical thing to do in this scenario. And David probably did know that. He probably knew what the right answer was, how to, you know, avoid getting killed from his own men and to, you know, get his own wives back. He probably knew what he needed to do. But nevertheless, before he does anything, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 tells us, and verse 6 and onwards, says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
In response to his men wanting to stone him, he said, it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In fact, he asks God, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God provides a clear answer. God says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And to keep the long story short, David wins the day. With the help of God, he defeats the Amalekites and returns the wives and children of his men to their proper husbands and fathers. Now, I think when we compare these two stories, the story of the Gibeonite deception and the story of David facing off of the Amalekites in the quaint idyllic village of Ziklag, um, I don't know why, it's not funny, <laughs> but I keep saying it. Um, I think we can get a clear lesson out of this, like a pretty simple lesson, which is that, hey, we should take counsel from Yahweh. I mean, like, Joshua did not heed God's counsel, and he ended up breaking God's commandments. David, on the other hand, even whenever he thought uh, the answer seemed clear to him, he did heed God's counsel, and he ended up saving the day. And I think that's a good enough lesson. I mean, we, too, should seek counsel in our Lord throughout our lives. I mean, for instance, we were talking about the meaning of marriage, a Tim Keller book earlier. When we're when facing marriage, we might pray like, Lord, I don't know if this person is a right person for me to uh, marry. Give me peace if this is the right decision to make. We might pray something like that. When searching for a job, we might pray, hey, God, I don't know if pursuing this job would be glorifying to you. Uh, if it wouldn't be, close that door. But something that I've observed from my own experience is that we only tend to turn to the Lord's counsel when we know that we don't have the right answer. We only tend to take the Lord's counsel when we know, or at least when we think that we do not have the right answer. And that's an important point. I mean, yeah, you don't know who you're going to marry? Yeah, then you, don't, you turn to God. You don't know whether that job is right for you? Yeah, then you turn to God. But how many of us turn to God when we do think that we know the right answer? How many of us turn to God when we think we know what he would want us to do? To stick with the marriage example, I mean, sure, again, you might pray to God. You're completely oblivious concerning whether someone is right for you. But what if you do know that someone is right for you? What if, you, what if just being with this person makes you feel happy? What if you find the way they laugh to be cute? What if they're a fellow believer who's grounded in their faith? What if you could see how a marriage with them would be excellent for the mission field? And what if there's just that spark, that romantic chemistry? I mean, do you still turn to God if all those things are the case. If we look back at these stories, we see that both individuals, Joshua and David, were confident in their answers. They thought that they knew what the right decision was. I mean, Joshua, channeling his inner Sherlock Holmes, like all the Israelites, they're asking questions. They're figuring out. They're getting evidence. Again, people don't just wear tattered rags around. So these strangers couldn't possibly be Gibeonites. And even though the text doesn't quite describe David's thought process in 1 Samuel 30, I mean, we know that he wasn't an idiot. <laughs> these, there really does only appear to be one answer to the, solution, to the problem that he's facing. But nevertheless, David turns to God. He inquires of God and is strengthened by God. Joshua, on the other hand, makes a mistake. 
He assumes that he has the right answer and subsequently fails to follow God's commands. So I don't think we should just simply content ourselves by comparing these two stories and being like, oh yeah, we should turn to God. That's the lesson. The lesson here I think is more pointed, which is that we should take counsel in God even if, and perhaps especially if, we think we know the right answer. We should take counsel in God, especially if we think that we know the right answer. I mean, why else would Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, say to them that in everything they should let their requests be made known to God? I mean, if we really are putting the weight on that everything in and everything, then that includes times when we think that we know what God's going to say in response. In everything, we should make our requests be known to God. You know, in many ways, this lesson makes me think of an escape room. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, I know, seeing the faces, like, wait, wait, what? Yeah, I know, and I see some nods. Yeah, so my brother, uh, I took him for his bachelor party. He got married a few weeks ago. When we went for his bachelor party, we went to um, Frederick, Maryland, uh, downtown Frederick. Why are you giving me that look? Yes, Frederick. It's, I know it's not Ziklog, but it's something. Um, <laughs> but like... <laughs> Yeah, so Frederick, Maryland. We go to Frederick, Maryland. We go to an escape room. It's called The Witching Hour. And, like, the gimmick of this place um, is that, you know, you're trying to resurrect this witch. But, like, what's so cool about it is that the entire thing is pitch black. All you have, I know, yeah, it's kind of scary. The only thing you have is a little teeny electric candle to light things. That made things a little difficult. And because of its difficulty... Uh, we had to employ the number one thing, which is guaranteed to either make or break your um, escape room experience, which is that we had to practice communication. See, in escape rooms, you always want to keep your lines of communication open because that way you have more than one mind providing insight and checking your work. For example, um, in the witching hour, there was this door, and it was, the door had these like five glyphs on it, which... Of course, you know, is like a simple cipher puzzle that you've got to solve. So we eventually find the uh, key to the cipher, and because I'm a language nerd, I'm like, I'll solve the cipher. And so um, I take the book, and I'm like flipping through, getting the things figured out. I see this first one, I figure out it's a G. I see the second one, I figure out it's an R. And I, just as I am working through this, I am talking out loud through the process. I'm keeping this line of communication open, even though I think that I have the best method to solve this. I think I have the best method to solve this, which is just to keep flipping through these and figure out what each one of these is. But what I didn't know is that there was probably a better method, which was to save us time by inferring what the word is. See, it's a five-letter word. We have G, we have R, and uh, yeah, the whole theme is the witching hour. We're trying to resurrect a dead witch. That's the entire plot of this thing. Exactly. <laughs> you beat me to it. And that's exactly what my... Uh, one of JJ's friends said, JJ's like, well, we could probably guess, JJ's friend says, we could probably guess what it is. It's probably grave. And so he goes to the lock and starts figuring out the lock for the door. And sure enough, I go to the next letter. I'm like, yeah, that's an A. And yeah, and so, and so yeah, it's grave. But what I, I think the point I'm trying to make here is that when I'm keeping communication open with my teammates, I found that my time-intensive method, which would have led me to the correct answer, wasn't the most optimal. There was actually a better answer out there. There was the shorter method of inferring based off the information that we had. Now, I should go without saying that life can and often is a puzzle for us. Um, 
if you think you have all the answers, um, you might not be thinking hard enough. So, um, but life, life ought to be a little less confusing for us who call ourselves Christians because, I mean, we don't even have, we don't just have access to an being who's infinitely more wise than us, but we actually have access to the being who crafted this puzzle to begin with. And just as we might continue to communicate in an escape room, even if we think we know the answers, so too should we check our conclusions with God, even when we think we know what's best. And we might check our answers with God uh, by going to him in prayer, which is, of course, direct communication with God. We might do this through reading his scriptures, or we might even do this by uh, speaking with our brothers and sisters in Christ and hearing their input. It might be our more mature brother and sister in Christ. Either way, the Holy Spirit could be working through them, and they could be functioning as a mouthpiece for God on our behalf. And I, I should give, give a brief disclaimer here. I'm not saying that God will give you a clear answer every single time. Yes, David did get a clear answer whenever he was praying to God, but you're not going to get a clear answer every time. I know I've had experiences where God has given me a clear answer to prayer, but likewise, I know there's also been many times where I've prayed and I've honestly felt more confused afterwards. There are times where God wishes for us to walk in faith and to humbly wrestle with our ignorance. I mean, just think of the end of the book of Job. Job is demanding to see God and to ask this question to him, to ask God, why is this happening to me? Are you good to let this happen to me? And God gives, God does show up remarkably, and he gives the most incredible non-answer of all history, where he basically says, look at how incredible my wisdom is, trust me. Job never gets an answer. God wants him to walk in faith and to humbly submit to being ignorant compared to God's infinite wisdom. But regardless, regardless of that, regardless of whether we receive the answer that we're seeking or not, I still think that we should approach the Lord even when we're confident in our next step. We want to walk in the footsteps of David, being strengthened by God, and not in the footsteps of Joshua, who would have remained in God's will if only he had humbled himself to admit that despite his confidence, he might have still been wrong. Now we're going to go into a time of prayer right now, and I, I want you to do something different. When we go into our prayer groups, obviously talk about the lesson, what stood out, anything that came to your mind. But I want you to pray about something not that you don't know about, not that you don't know the answer about, but pray about something that you feel pretty confident about and turn it over to the Lord. Again, we're really easy to turn the uh, ignorant things, the things that we're ignorant about, the things we're not confident about over to God, but really humble yourself and turn something that you're confident about over to God tonight. Ask God to check your conclusions and to correct you if they're incorrect. And that's all I've got. So you guys can break out into your groups and uh, yeah, enjoy talking with God.